Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? Little disclaimer. Got a really bad cold. So hopefully I'm not going to sneeze on any of you folks here. Thought about giving out plastic bags, but, but I got my tissues. I got my Afrin. We're good to go. Okay. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me if you have them to Acts chapter 4. New Testament Acts chapter 4. If you're a guest with us today, just so you know what we're doing. We're in a series right now called Going Viral, uh, and it's a study of this first century document um, that records how the early how the early church and the good news of God's love and grace in Jesus went, as we would say today, went viral, spreading very quickly from the streets of Jerusalem to the farthest reaches of the known world. And last week we began chapter four of the document, uh, talking about how uh, the Christian church was born into a pluralistic uh, society, not unlike our own. You know, a society comprised of different cultures different religions, different systems of belief, all coming together to make up the vast Roman Empire. And we looked at how uh, the apostles Peter and John handled themselves uh, in the midst of such social complexity. And if you missed that, you can go online and listen, but I think you'll find it very helpful. Um, But if you were here, you know that something significant happens in chapter 4. I mean, keep in mind, uh, the church had grown from a handful of followers in chapter 1 to over 8,000 believers. And up until this point, uh, the apostles had experienced very little resistance or opposition from uh, those in authority. However, while in the temple one day, Peter and John are confronted by some of the religious leaders there who were told were greatly disturbed. You know, they're, they're just agitated and angry uh, and that, that, the, that the apostles were telling uh, people that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was put to death and raised to life uh, and by grace offers eternal life to those who believe. They were very disturbed by that. The religious elite, elite didn't like the message, and so they seized Peter and John, and they threw them in jail, and, uh, and they left them there overnight, and then they bring them out in the morning, and they tell them to stop teaching about Jesus. And remember, Peter said, he said, you know, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And the leaders, the leaders said, see, that's what we're talking about right there, exactly that. You're not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And John and and Peter reply, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we've heard. And with that, the religious leaders, um, they, they kept warning them and threatening them. But eventually they let them go. And there's little doubt in mind that mind that... While walking away from that confrontation, John and Peter realized something had now shifted, and they and the church were in trouble, serious trouble. Persecution was coming, and they were right. So what do they do? Well, let me read the text for you, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. But beginning in verse uh, 23, we're told Peter and John, they get released, they go back to the church, they report to everyone what, what the religious leaders said, the threats, the warnings, all of it. And we're told that when, when they heard this, when the Christians in the church heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And they said, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. And now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. 
All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. You know, every now and then, um, when I'm talking to someone about Christianity or about faith, the question gets asked, um, what does authentic faith look like? You know, how do I know if I'm really a Christian? Uh, it's a good question, and um, it's one people respond differently to, because some, some people say, well, you know, a real Christian uh, believes certain doctrines, like the Apostles' Creed. Or, uh, Christians go regularly to church. They read their Bible. They obey the Ten Commandments. They live a good life. And certainly those things are positive. But do they sufficiently authenticate one's faith? That's the question. Uh, in the discipline of logic, there's a concept called necessary and sufficient conditions. And the idea is that in order for a certain thing to be true, there may be necessary conditions, but those conditions may not sufficiently guarantee the truth. For example, being a mammal is necessary, but not a sufficient condition for being human because some mammals aren't human. But being human is a sufficient condition for being a mammal because all humans are mammals. Or let's say, let's say you live in a culture where uh, philosophers have to wear a gray suit. All philosophers, they have to wear a gray suit. That's the law. But other people can wear gray suits as well if they'd like. And therefore, wearing a gray suit is a necessary but not a sufficient sign that someone is a philosopher. You track with that? Here's the point. To be an authentic Christian, it is necessary for a person to affirm certain biblical doctrines, but that affirmation is not sufficient in guaranteeing one is a Christian. And that's, you know, that's what James is getting out of the New Testament when he writes the early church and he says, look, even the demons believe in God. They affirm and, and hold to correct doctrine, you know, the Trinity, the deity of Jesus, all of that. But that doesn't make them Christians. And in the same way, saying you believe in Jesus doesn't necessarily mean you're a Christian. So... Again, here's my question. What conditions, what signs sufficiently authenticate one's faith? And it seems to me that what Peter and John and, and the church do here in the face of persecution represents both nece a necessary and sufficient sign of authentic faith. So what do they do? Well, they do several things. First, they trust and they serve God. I mean, really, unwaveringly, even in the face of suffering. After being jailed and threatened, Peter and John realized that if the religious, they, they look, they were smart enough to know, if the religious elite of Jerusalem had no problem torturing and killing Jesus, then they would have absolutely no problem doing the same to his followers. John and Peter, they knew something bad was going to happen, somebody was going to get hurt, somebody was going to die. They go back, they talk to the church about all this, they explain what happened, and what do these early believers do? They begin to pray, and they express their trust in God, even though things were getting confusing and chaotic and a little dangerous. And they say, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Translation, God, you are the creator of all things. You're good, you're powerful, you're sovereignly in control, and therefore we trust you no matter what. You know, when I read this prayer, it made me think back to the story of Job in the Old Testament. Remember, we did a study of Job last year. And if you recall, Job was a wealthy, uh, honorable man who loved God, uh, but who one day lost nearly everything in his life, almost everything. I mean, he, the dude endured incredible pain and suffering. And his wife and his few friends that he had kept telling him over and over again that God was punishing him for something bad that he had, he had done. That must be the case. And yet Job wasn't buying into that. Job maintained his innocence. 
And he never curses God through all of it. And at the end, ultimately, God vindicates Job and says, well done, Job. Because although Job questioned God, quite honestly, and at times with frustration and anger, his unexplained suffering, because Job never gets an answer, but his unexplained suffering didn't drive him away from God. It, it in fact, drew him closer to God and most certainly intensified his prayer life. You see, Job was accused of serving God for what he got out of it. Favor, success, family, wealth, health. In other words, it was, it was said by the adversary of God that Job didn't serve God for who God was, but for the benefits he received. The enemy said to God, you take away his benefits and he'll curse you. And Job proved that wasn't the case. In the midst of it all, even in his, his deepest moments of agony, Job said, remember what he said? Though God, even though God slay me, Job said, even though he slay me, still I will trust him. And back when we studied the book last year, we, we talked a lot about this and about how Job's experience overall shows us, whether we like it or not, shows us that suffering has a very unique way of revealing what we really believe about God and what our relationship with him is about. Well, that being the case, and in light of our, our discussion today, I, I have to say that in life, it's pretty difficult to tell if you're a Christian when things are going well. The issue is what happens when things go bad. That's the test. You know, for, for John, for Peter, for all the others in the church, knowing persecution was on the rise, like Job, what do they do? They pray. And uh, rather than reading through it all again, let me just point out to you what they don't ask for. They don't ask for a change in circumstances. They don't ask for um, protection. They don't ask for revenge. They don't ask for lightning bolts to shoot out of heaven and strike the religious leaders who threw them in jail. None of that. Instead, they express their trust in God and his work in history, and they pray, Lord, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. In other words, give us courage to keep telling people about Jesus. Now, this is not to say... Okay, so uh, they pray and ask God to give them courage. That isn't to say, now that isn't to say that we should never pray for those things, that we shouldn't pray for our needs, we shouldn't pray for protection, because Jesus said, he taught us how to pray. He said, pray, Father, give us today our daily bread and deliver us from evil, right? Remember? But getting those things isn't meant to be the primary reason we're in relationship with God. In other words, it's not a quid pro quo arrangement. You know, sometimes people will say to me, you know, Ray, I used to go to church, I used to be a Christian, but then, you know, all these bad things happened to me. I lost my job. I lost a friend. I got sick. Um, and so I gave up on God because I can't believe in a God who would do something like that, who would, who would make bad things happen or let bad things happen to me, which of course then means that person never really loved God for God, but for what they felt they could get from him, what they deserved from him. And in saying that, you may think that I'm being harsh, but if, if you look at it this way, what if you had a lot of money, a lot of influence, and a lot of power and a lot of friends. But one day you lose your money, you lose your influence, and you lose your power, and your friends say, see ya, and they abandon you. How would that make you feel? What would you say? You'd probably say, you know, those people didn't love me for me. They were, they were after what they could get from me. As soon as they didn't get what they, they wanted, they took off. And you would be hurt by that. You'd be indignant. Understandably so. And so I'm wondering if it's reasonable for us to feel that way when we're mistreated and kind of used, why is it not reasonable for God to feel the exact same way when people reject him and abandon him because they don't get what they want or what they think they deserve? Listen, times of suffering, whether it's, whether it's through persecution or comes in some other form, times of suffering tend to reveal the nature and the depth of our belief. Do we believe in God to get him to serve us? Or do we love God for who he is and is our desire to serve him? Authentic faith trusts and serve, serves God no matter what, even in suffering. Authentic faith is also marked by knowing God personally. And I don't, 
I don't simply mean having information about God. I mean, I mean knowing him. You know, one day Jesus prayed for his followers. He said, Father, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and me, Jesus, the Christ, whom you've sent. And the term uh, know in that text carries the idea of intimacy. You see, biblical Christianity is all about that. It's not about religion, but relationship, a personal one with God. And in many respects, that's a hard thing to define. I think it perhaps is a bit easier to describe. To say personal means you have an individual connection to God that affects you, your thinking, your emotions, your behavior, all of it. The term relationship implies your connection is a two-way thing. It's a two-way deal. You realize over 90% of Americans believe in God today. More than 80% of them pray regularly. And when they're asked about what they pray for, most people say, well, I pray for my needs, which is fine. But in my opinion, if that's the extent of it, that's not really a relationship, you think? You guys know what Peapod is? Peapod is this home delivery grocery system, you know, this service, and how it works is you, you call the Peapod person, and, uh, and you say, um, I want this, that, and the other thing. You, you, you give them a list, you place your order, and then they deliver the goods, right? It's a, pretty, it's, a, it's a pretty sweet little deal. But just because you call them, does that mean you have a personal relationship to the Peapod guy? I mean, do you? I mean, it would be kind of weird if you thought you did, right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure the Peapod person doesn't see it that way, right? And yet that's how, that's how some people view and treat God, like the Peapod guy in the sky, you know? <laughs> Uh, hey, God, I want this, that, and the other thing. Here's the list. Here's the order. Give me the stuff as soon as you can, right? And then think that they have a relationship with him. And I'm just not sure that's how God sees it. That's a one-way deal. In his book, Answering God, pastor, author, poet, Dr. Eugene Peterson suggests that a true relationship with God is measured more by our response to God than anything else. In, f in fact, in, in terms of prayer, he makes the point that true prayer is, is answering God, responding to God. And he talks about how he asked the question, how do we learn to talk as, as, as human beings? If no one speaks to us when we're little babies, we just, we just grow up making noises, right? Someone had to speak to us first, and then we respond to them. And so it is with God. You know, he has spoken to us first through creation, through scripture, ultimately through Jesus. And our relationship to him is a, is a lot about how we respond in turn. And, you know, that's what happens with John and Peter in the church. Sure, they ask for courage, but it's in response to who God is. You know, they start by acknowledging him. They quote Psalm 2, which was all about God's power and wisdom and, and sovereignty. You know, there's no question the church was scared, you know, by what just happened. And so they were praying for courage, but they don't do it in a relational vacuum. They pray in response to their personal knowledge of and relationship to God, a relationship founded on Jesus and divine grace. Is that making any sense to you? Because I wrote that section when I had a fever on Thursday, so I'm just checking. <laughs> I'm just checking. I'm just checking. My wife said, you think you should be writing stuff when you feel like that? Anyway, so I, I think that's a fascinating idea, this responding to God is really what our relationship to him is mostly about. And I'd like to explore that more, but I really have to move on because I want you to see what happens next. You know, after they prayed, we're told that the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were filled, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak the word of God boldly. In other words, it seems authentic Christian faith is also marked by experiencing God, at least periodically. Again, it all comes down to the fact that faith isn't just about affirming objective truth. There's an experiential aspect to it. You know, so often we in the church go to extremes. You know what I mean? Some of, us, some of us see faith as primarily a rational, intellectual deal. Others live at the opposite end of the, of, the, of the extreme and judge it more in terms of emotionalism and subjective experience. 
But going to either extreme misses the reality that Christianity is both rational and experiential. And that was certainly the case with Peter, Matthew, John, all the rest. They didn't just, look, they didn't just sit around discussing what they knew to be objectively true about Jesus and his resurrection and the good news of God's grace. They also experienced the power and overwhelming presence of God's spirit in their lives. And when they did, man, when they did, their fear turned to courage. And then they spoke the word of God boldly. John Chrysostom a fourth-century Greek pastor summarized it this way. He said, the place was shaken, and that made the Christians all the more unshaken. Now, understand, when I say genuine faith is both rational and experiential, I am not saying that, that God's Spirit at some point is going to show up and shake a room you're sitting in. What I am suggesting is that periodically, he will show up and he will shake you. And he will overwhelm you with the reality of God's love and grace and power. Overwhelm you with it, the reality of it. Has that ever happened to you? Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century theologian, author, pastor, philosopher, he's a lot of things. Considered by some historians to be the most important leader of the Great Awakening, a spiritual revival that swept uh, America in the 17th uh, 1700s. And Edwards was an intellectual. He entered Yale University just before his 13th birthday. The guy was brilliant. And he was a firm believer in the objective truth of the gospel of Jesus and the grace uh, of God. And, and there were moments in his life when he was, he was overcome by the reality of it. And uh, he writes about the experience. He says, I once walked abroad alone in a solitary place in my father's pasture for contemplation. As I was walking and looking upon the sky and clouds, there came into my mind so sweet a sense of the glorious majesty and grace of God as I know not how to express. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent, great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour, which kept me in a flood of tears and weeping. I felt an ardency of soul to be full of Christ alone, to love him, to trust him, to serve him, to follow him. I have several other times had views very much of the same nature and which have had the same effects. Here's my Reiki summary. Edwards is explaining how sometimes in the life of a believer, the rational objective truth of Jesus and the gospel of grace experientially overwhelms us and not only brings us to, to tears of humility and joy and gratitude, but gives us courage to trust, to, to, to follow, and to serve God more fully. Biblical Christianity is not merely a cold intellectual assent to doctrinal information. It is objective truth that when embraced, carries experiential ramifications. I mean, there, there, there have been a number of times in my life when the reality, the reality of God's love and grace for, for me just hits me and just shakes me to the core. Have you ever been shaken? And one of the ways we describe it around here is to say that God's grace changes things. It changes people. It changes us from the inside out. And that's what happened to Peter and John and the rest of the church. You know, the grace of God just overwhelmed them. And then for them, authentic faith in Jesus was, was marked by exhibiting God's grace generously. You know, some of the translations we have place a, a paragraph break between verse 31 and 32 of the text, but if you think through the progression of events, you realize that there's a clear cause and effect going on here. What I mean is, what happens in verse 32 is part of the outward effect of what just happened in, in verse 31. 
They're connected. Think about it. In the face of persecution and injustice, all the believers get together and they pray and they're quoting scripture and they're affirming God's sovereignty and, and they're acknowledging their trust in him no matter what and they're asking for boldness and they are shaken to the core. They're empowered by God's spirit and then they go out and they speak with great courage about the gospel. But that courage, you see, didn't simply impact what they said. It impact how, impacted how they lived with ridiculous generosity. We're told all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of their possessions was their own, but shared everything they had. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And see, this is where those who who sometimes say, we need to get back to doing things the way the early church did them, this is where those folks balk a little. (laughs) Because these early Christians were crazy generous. I don't know how else to put it. Crazy generous. And by the way, they didn't give privately. They gave publicly. Now, maybe you still don't see the connection to verse 31. Here it is. What's the reason we as Christians in the church today tend not to be so ridiculously generous? Um, and we might say, well, it's because of the, 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 the greed and the materialism of our culture. I mean, it is pervasive. And certainly that's part of it. But I think the real reason goes deeper. I think it goes deeper than stinginess. I think it's fearfulness. I think we're afraid. I think we're afraid to be so generous because we tend to put our hope in our savings, in our investments, in our, in our, in our portfolios, in our possessions. Not the early church. Courage that God gave them, the fearlessness and the hope that they found in the rational and experiential reality of the gospel allowed and inspired them to give the way that they did a way that began to change the world around them. No one ever saw this kind of generosity before, this kind of love, this kind of compassion, this kind of community. No one ever saw it before. In fact, the text gives us the full explanation of what was going on. We're told that God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. In other words, their ridiculous generosity didn't flow out of religious ritual or guilty obligation. It flowed out of grace, grace that they each had experienced in Jesus. Grace overflowed out of their lives. And again, as we say, grace changes things. It does. It changes things. It changes people. It changes us, not just in what we courageously say, but in how we courageously live and give. How courageous are we? Listen, the questions we started with, you know, what does authentic faith look like? How do I know if I'm really a Christian? To ask ourselves those questions now and again, I think is a good thing. Uh, I mean, if, we, if I ask myself that every day, I'd draw myself nuts. But, but to, to never ask it is equally as unhealthy. Because understand, to be a Christian, it is necessary for us to affirm certain biblical doctrines, to believe in Jesus as Savior. But that affirmation isn't sufficient in guaranteeing one's faith is genuine. Along with that, uh, along with what we say, the question is, do we, do we trust and serve God even in the midst of suffering? Do we? And do you know God personally and relationally? Do you experience God periodically or are you every now and then just overwhelmed by his love and his grace and the fact that he, he cares about you personally and came and died for you personally? Are you overwhelmed by that reality? And do you exhibit God's grace generously? You know, those are, those are critical questions, but they're questions, only that, uh, they're, they're questions that only you uh, yourself can answer. And I hope when you do, your answer is yes to all of them.
Lord, as, I, as, I, as I've been rereading and studying uh, the history of the church, even in this uh, chapter where we, we see um, injustice begin to uh, rear its ugly head in response to Jesus and the message of grace, and how Peter and John were thrown in jail for no good reason, and how they, they recognized what was happening, and they knew, I'm sure, that uh, this was just the beginning, and certainly that's the case. We know from history that um, persecution breaks out against your people by those in religious those religious authorities who wanted to maintain control. Uh, we're just seeing the beginning of it uh, in the text now. But in the, even in the face of it, Lord, and uh, it amazes me how your people got together and they just prayed and they, they didn't pray for you to remove the, or get even with the authorities. They just, they acknowledged their trust in you and they prayed for courage. I don't know if I've ever done that before. Because more often I'm just I'm asking for my needs to be met and for you to do this and that and the other thing and really is what I need is courage. It's what we all need. But when we look at Jesus, we we find that courage. We experience it because of of what He went through, giving His life for us, that we might be forgiven, that Your grace might pour out into our lives and change us from the inside out. And so this morning, I pray that each of us would have the courage just to ask the question, you know, is my faith real? It's not only do I say I believe in Jesus, but um, do I trust you even in difficult times, times of loss and and times of pain? And do do I experience you Periodically, and am I overwhelmed by your spirit when I realize your love and your, your, your care for me? Do we, um, do we live our lives in such a way that grace is offered to those around us through just ridiculous generosity and love and compassion? Do we see that impacting the people in our lives? That's the question we need to ask. And so I pray this morning that your spirit would come and you would shake each of us to the core. And even as we end the service and we sing of your goodness and your greatness, that your spirit would shake us and overwhelm us with the reality of who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. Fill us with your grace. Change us by your grace, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.